Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the Metabolic Classroom, a nutrition and lifestyle podcast focused on the truth behind why we get sick and fat. What you're about to hear was taken from a live broadcast streamed on InsulinIQ.com. The Metabolic Classroom is brought to you by InsulinIQ and by Health Code Meal Replacement Shakes. Episode 29, Diving into Diabetes Drugs. Some of the most common diabetes drugs work in interesting ways. Let's talk about some of the most common SGLT inhibitors and GLP-1 receptor agonists. Uh, this is a metabolic classroom topic that I think we might need to, we've touched on it before, discussing some prominent diabetes drugs. And just because there are so many, we might have to touch on them more in the future. Uh, so the ones that I wanted to discuss today are um, two different classes of drugs. One are what's called SGLT2 uh, or SGLT inhibitors. And then the other is uh, a GLP-1 agonists or GL GLP-1 receptor agonists to be a little more precise. Now let's start with a brief discussion of uh, the first ones, the SGLT inhibitors. I remind the, the class that we, this is a topic, SGLTs is not a new topic. This is something we discussed in an earlier classroom when we spoke about glucose transport in the body. And I compared the two different types of glucose transporters. The predominant type of glucose transporter is what's called just glucose transporters. And that's, that's abbreviated to GLUT or GLUT. So we have very many different types of glutes. Every cell has them. <clears throat> Essentially, as a brief reminder, these glutes will move glucose between a cell and, and the blood. So anytime there's glucose moving in and out of a cell um, that's between the blood or internal blood body tissues, that's going to be a glucose transporter. Now, there are two other areas where we aren't 
moving glucose around within the body, but we're actually moving from the outside in. One of those is in the intestines. That's an obvious one. When we eat something with starches or sugars, we need to absorb those. That happens through a process, uh, through a transporter called the sodium glucose co-transporter, and that's abbreviated to SGLT. So that's SGLT1. And that is, it might not seem like it, but something that is in our guts is in fact not in the body. I know that's a bit of a, a bit of a stretch to think about, but if it's in the guts, it's moving through the body, well, but not being inside it in a way. That's a bit of a esoteric thought perhaps, but essentially we're moving the glucose from outside the body in at the level of the intestines. Then the second place where that's happening is in the kidneys. Now you're thinking rightly, well, the kidneys are very much within the body. Yeah, but when, when, the, when the blood is flowing through a part of the kidney where the filtration happens, it's, it actually pulls the glucose into a tubule that goes that would be making its way down to the bladder. So what would be turning into urine, which is then going to be exiting the body. So in a way, when we have filtered something from the blood into the kidney tubules, it's like it's gone from inside the body to kind of outside the body, if you will much of that glucose will get resorbed. It gets moved back into the, into the blood. But now it's going from kind of the outside in, and now it uses SGLT2 to move in. So those are the two times where we're not using a glute, we're using an SGLT. SGLT1 is in the intestines, moving the glucose that we just ate into the body. SGLT2 is in the kidneys, <clears throat> moving the glucose that we had just filtered out of the body back in. Now, let's talk about these drugs then. So what they have in common, the SGLT1 inhibitors and the SGLT2 inhibitors is the name. If, you're, if you have a drug name that ends with something like Flozin, there's di several different types, um, like Empagliflozin, Ertugliflozin, I think Darpagliflozin. So if it ends with that kind of awkward two syllables of or three Glyflozin, that's an SGLT1 or 2 inhibitor. And that'll kind of just help you get an idea of, of what the drug you might be thinking of. Is it one of those? Now, SGLT1 inhibitors. I already mentioned that it acts in the gut. So that's where SGLT1 inhibitors are working. Now, when we eat something that is starchy and sugary, we need to break it down <clears throat> into its simple um, components, a monosaccharide like glucose or fructose. And once we are down to that fundamental carbohydrate building block, now we can move it into the body. When someone eats a starchy meal and they take an SG and they're taking an SGLT1 inhibitor, they have the ability to digest the food. They have the enzymes in the guts that are breaking those carbohydrates apart into these complex molecules into the simple sugars, the glucose and the fructose mostly. Um, but now they can't get into the intestine. We've blocked that channel off, that transporter, that little door stays shut where it normally wants to be pulling the glucose in, it can't. And now that glucose stays in the intestines unabsorbed. Now, that seems like a good thing. And if our only concern was making sure that the carbohydrates a person eating is, that is eating isn't getting into the blood, well, then the concern ends because it works. That drug will do that and it does it very well. One of the immediate concerns to that, however, is that <clears throat> physics comes into play in that when you start talking about cells and, and fluids, like water, we have water everywhere in our bodies, of course, 
we have to account for something called an osmotic gradient. Now, I can already imagine Rich's eyes kind of rolling into the back of his head. I mentioned <laughs> physics. I've mentioned the word osmotic. And, and to, to basically what this means is an osmotic gradient is that if you have two sections of something separated by a wall that, or a membrane that can move water, if one side has more stuff, more molecules in it than the other, it will pull the water to the side with more stuff. That's called an osmotic gradient. So if you have a cell and outside the cell has more molecules than inside the cell, the water will come out. It'll be pulled out of the cell. And in a way, that's what's happening in the intestines. If we have a lot of undigested sugars moving through our intestines, those shouldn't be there. Those should have been absorbed and pulled into the blood. It's staying in the intestines and that creates an osmotic pull. It's pulling water from our blood, potentially lowering our blood volume, potentially to an unhealthy level. If we have too little blood volume, then we have too little blood pressure and our brain needs pressure because it's at the top of our body of water. But, but the most immediate problem is the, the awkward moments that come from putting a lot of water into your intestines. And so a person who's taking SGLT1 inhibitors can have the socially risky situation of never knowing what might be coming out of your guts um, at any moment. So very um, awkward diarrhea and other gastrointestinal distress, to put it, to put it politely and mildly. So that's a, that's a concern that I have with SGLT1 inhibitors. That's why I'm a little, um, I'm pretty lukewarm on that. Now, I'm even less warm. I'm even chillier when it comes to SGLT2 inhibitors because the consequences are a little more, well, consequential. You know, SGLT2 inhibitors, remember, they will allow the kidney to pull the glucose out to get filtered like it should. That's a normal thing. It'll allow the glucose to come out of the blood and then just go right back in. And it blocks the SGLT2 inhibitors, block it from coming back in. So what, what's happening then is that we're pulling the glucose out. And as we pull the glucose into the kidney tubule, that creates an osmotic gradient. And so we start pulling more water from the blood with it. And that is why someone who's taking an SGLT2 inhibitor will like kind of the comparison or the parallel to the SGLT1 inhibitor, they'll have much more water going into their urine in this case. And so they will have to urinate much more frequently in much higher volumes. Now that's actually the mildest negative outcome. Now, to be clear, it works. If you inhibit SGLT1 or you inhibit SGLTT, you will lower glucose. You're blocking the glucose from coming in and or you're blocking the glucose from coming back in. So you're just dumping it from the blood. Now, the kidneys and the urinary tract are not meant to have high levels of glucose. In a healthy person, you have essentially zero glucose in your urine. We reabsorb all of it. All the glucose that gets filtered gets reabsorbed. But when we're blocking SGLT2, we don't allow that reabsorption. Now it's staying in the urinary tract. Well, the urinary tract, no real surprise, is a bit of a potentially a dirty place. That's an area where at the end of the urinary tract, it, we have this exposure to the world. And so it's no surprise that bacteria are constantly trying to work their way up the urinary tract. And the normal process of urination helps flush those bacteria out. And the fact that we have urea, the primary component, actually also helps keep those um, bacteria at bay. But what do bacteria eat? And I wouldn't even say what do they like to eat. It is literally the only thing they can eat. They eat glucose. 
And so when you have your urinary tract flush with glucose, you're essentially telling these little bacteria that are working their way up to give you a urinary tract or a bladder infection, or in the most serious, uh, a full-on kidney infection, um, you're basically telling them, look, I don't want you here, but here's a buffet. So good luck on your travels, and, and, uh, and, and, and I'm making it all the easier. You're, you're starting to wear out and lack energy because urinary tract shouldn't have any. Well, here you go. Let me just give you some more. And that is a very real um, negative outcome of SGLT2 inhibitors, the, the increased risk of urinary tract and bladder infections. Usually the infection doesn't make it all the way up to the bladder. Usually we've cleared it out before then, but it can. And when you've flushed the system with glucose, you're essentially giving the bacteria the little extra help they need to get up there. Now, this that one's much clearer um, of an outcome and, and a negative uh, side effect of SGLT2 inhibitors. A less clear outcome, but far more serious, is the risk for bladder cancer. Um, and there is, this is, this is debated, and there's evidence on both sides of this, suggesting that SGLT2 inhibition does increase bladder cancer and evidence to show that it does not. So I want to be very clear here. But just like bacteria, now in this case, cancer cells, they prefer glucose. That is the fuel that they thrive on. If you start depriving a cancer cell of glucose, it will stop its growth. So uh, it, it, to me, it makes some scientific sense that if you're flushing your urinary tract with glucose, you would be uh, potentially making a cancer more aggressive. I'm not saying it would cause the cancer, but if you had one there, I would imagine that you're making it more aggressive. Now, as I wrap up that thought of SGLT1 and 2 inhibition, and before I transition to GLP1 receptor agonists, I just want to you know, put a cherry on top of this, this line of thinking, which is um, the, the kind of rational view that is just kind of standing to the side of this conversation, that's standing to the side of the clinical visit when the patient and the physician is having a conversation about SGLT1 inhibitors. If you are taking a drug that is blocking the glucose from coming in, <clears throat> or you're taking a drug that is pushing it out of the body, the rational little person standing in the corner just wants to whisper, why not just eat less glucose? Uh, and, and indeed, eating less glucose gives you the exact same effect that these drugs are trying to replicate. So it's another one of these instances where a drug is essentially used as a permission. A permission. Um, it, it, it enables this kind of permissive way of eating, which is, yeah, the carbs aren't good. And we know that glucose is not healthy and it's spiking your insulin. The glucose alone is pathogenic. And, but heaven forbid I tell you not to eat the glucose. Eat your glucose. Just make sure you take these meds to have a way of blocking it from coming in. Yeah, and don't mind the horrific diarrhea and flatulence. Or two, push it out of your body. And yeah, don't mind the urinary tract infections because it'll, it'll lower your glucose and that's what we want. Yeah, we do want to lower the glucose, um, but so why not just eat less glucose? So that's my final thought on on those drugs. I, hey ben, I'm very, I'm not very enthusiastic supporters of them. Hey Ben, real quick question. I want to interrupt the the classroom, but I've got a product here at Elevate that I've been selling for years um, that claims it has a natural, like a white bean extract that that does kind of the same thing naturally. It does not allow the body to absorb the carbohydrate. You know anything about those kind of natural? Yeah, yeah, yep. So there are there are compounds in in certain um, starchy foods. Maybe it's mostly things like beans or, or rice. I think one of form of rice has something similar. 
that becomes, I, I don't know that it directly blocks glucose digestion, but there's something about that starch itself that becomes less digestible. But, but I, I don't know as much on that topic as I, as I ought to, but for, I do know there are natural foods that would normally be high in starch that do act in a, in a way either blocking the digestion of other carbs or themselves, those carbs themselves become somewhat non-digestible. Yeah, and it's interesting. Ben, yeah, so that can when, happen. Yeah, when I eat those products, it, it typically will lower my glucose, but it has a pretty dramatic effect on my ketone production. I'm not sure why that would be. And it goes up? It goes down. Down. Oh, yeah. Interesting. Yeah, so, so one yeah. thing about SGLT2 inhibitors is, in fact, I ought to have elaborated on this, is that there is uh, an observation of normal glycemic ketoacidosis. So that is a, that's something that shouldn't happen. Uh, typically, if someone's in ketoacidosis where their ketones have gone pathologically high, that's not a state people can get to normally unless you're like an untreated type 1 diabetic. Um, but what happens, there's something, and this is an unknown mechanism, there's something about these SGLT2 inhibitors in particular that are ramping up ketone production um, but not happening because in the untreated type one diabetic, the lack of insulin means glucose is through the roof and then ketones go up as well. Cause in the absence of insulin, the body basically becomes flush with all nutrients, glucose and ketones included. Uh, so there's something unique about ketogenesis and SGLT2 inhibition, but I would hate to say this lest someone think, oh, well, I want higher ketones. So I'm just going to take SGLT2 inhibitors. No, no, that is not, that is not what you want here. It's not worth the, the risk and the other consequences. Okay. So is that, now, can, can I ask a question directly about that? Is that a reason to not go fully into ketosis when you're on SGLT2 inhibitors because of the yes. risk of ketoacidosis? Absolutely. If someone's on an SGLT2 inhibitor um, and they want to start flirting with a low carb diet, then you need to be exceptionally careful uh, because of that known and, and identified and published um, phenomenon where it can accelerate ketogenesis to a point that becomes very dangerous. And would it be yeah. worth talking to the doctor and asking if there's something different they could be on or off? I would think so. Mm -hmm. okay. Yep. I, and hopefully the physician would be supportive if the, if the patient came in and said, look, I know I'm on an SGLT2 inhibitor. I want to really try a low carb diet. In fact, I, I'm gonna, how can we change my meds? Um, that would be the conversation to have. Right. And, and one, one, one alternative might be the one that we transition to now. So um, GLP-1 stands for glucagon-like peptide. This was one of several hormones that was discovered to come from the gut. There are many gut-derived hormones. And GLP-1 was a prominent one identified that might explain why people who have had gastric bypass experience such drastic and almost complete remission of their type two diabetes. Now, what, what's interesting about bypass, and this will be a topic in the classroom, it really ought to for another time. These are people who are still extraordinarily overweight, and yet they become immediately as insulin sensitive as, as a marathon runner. And, and part of this was thought to be because of this incredible change in gut derived hormones. GLP-1 was one of them that was identified um, from the blood of post bypass patients. And then of course, drug companies were clever enough to start uh, making it and packaging it on their own. So we make GLP-1 and these GLP-1 receptor agonists are basically a drug that we can take orally that mimic what GLP-1 is doing. It basically turns on those same pathways. 
Now, on the surface, it's the kind of drug that I would not get behind. Not that I'm really behind any drug, but GLP-1 receptor agonists are, are in, a, in a general family of drug called insulin secretagogues. An insulin secretagogue is a hormone that induces, it basically forces the beta cells of the pancreas to make more insulin. So in, in some instances of type 2 diabetes, insulin has been remarkably high for years, decades, and then the insulin can start to taper off. It never goes to zero. It never even goes as low as it was before, but it will go lower than it had been at its peak. And so the view is, well, the insulin's coming down, the glucose is going up. Well, let's just push the insulin up even higher and the glucose will come down. I take, um, I resent that view, but that's the justification for insulin secretagogues. GLP-1 receptor agonists do that. They will induce this higher synthesis of insulin and that will help the glucose come down. On the surface, if the story stopped there, I would say I cannot endorse, well, I'm not endorsing any drug. I would give it a very, very, I'd give it a failing grade 100%. However, <clears throat> glucagon does more than just induce the release of insulin. That is something glucagon does. Glucagon stimulates, uh, or rather, yeah, glucagon stimulates insulin release from the beta cells. And they share a little neighborhood in the pancreas. Uh, so that's, that's how the GLP-1 receptor is increasing the insulin. <clears throat> but glucagon does more than just stimulate insulin, including activating brown adipose tissue, which I'm sure the, the, the classroom attendees, the students have all heard me speak about in some um, venue or another. So brown adipose tissue is a type of fat that all humans have. Indeed, to my knowledge, all mammals have in some way, shape, or form. Humans, uh, as babies, we have quite a bit of it. As we grow, we have much, much less. And it's generally limited to just this area in our, what's called our thoracic cavity around our ribs and neck. Just little little bits of this brown fat. And it is brown. I've physically seen different types of this fat. Um, it, it is browner, a reddish brown, because it's so heavily loaded with mitochondria, the so-called powerhouse of the cell. And when brown fat is activated, say through ketones or through thyroid hormone or through cold exposure, then it has, it has a phenomenally high metabolic rate, higher than our muscle does. And, and so we have this if we can activate our brown fat, now we have this tissue that is just burning through glucose and, and fat, but glucose, brown fat loves burning glucose. And so what this GLP-1 receptor agonist is doing, yes, yeah, sure, it's inducing some insulin release, which I'm not a big fan of, but at the same time, it's encouraging the body to be chewing through its glucose by activating the brown adipose or the brown fat. That's a decidedly good thing. So in the end, these kind of work against each other. In my view, the, hyper the, the increase of insulin would be, in my view, again, very pathogenic or harmful. Increasing brown fat, I think, would be very beneficial. Ultimately, it looks like the sum of these tips in favor of the good effect, um, which is that when people take GLP-1 receptor agonists, they don't have the weight gain that typically comes with insulin secretagogues. Indeed, they appear to have um, more favorable weight loss and at the same time have better glycemic or better glucose levels and better insulin overall, ultimately, because if you just lowered your glucose, insulin just goes down as well. So I give GLP-1 receptor agonists a decidedly better grade um, than I do the SGLT-1 and 2 inhibitors, two very different classes of drugs overall, two very different mechanisms, but all seeking ultimately the same thing, 
which is lowering the glucose, which is why they're used in, in the realm of diabetes drugs. So those are the thoughts. Um, and, and one final thought I should have said about the GLP-1 receptor agonists. These are typically a class of drugs whose names will end with the words glutide. Glutide. So liraglutide, dulaglutide, those are all um, going to be GLP-1 receptor agonists. Hey, Ben, I got a question for you. In terms of metformin, that's not one of these drugs, correct? So no, it's if, not. If, if metformin is so efficient at what it does, why would a physician um, prescribe something beyond metformin? Yeah, yeah, because like every drug, it's, it has diminishing returns, to, to quote an economics professor or econ. To invoke economics, it has diminishing returns, like every drug. That's why, <clears throat> that's why I'm such an advocate of lifestyle changes, because if the patient leaves... Now, here I am pretending I know what actually happens in a clinical visit. But essentially, if a patient is given a, a diabetes medication... All that will happen for the rest of their life is they will have to increase the dose and then eventually the dose becomes um, harmful and then they have to start incorporating other drugs. So Rich, usually metformin is the first prescribed drug because it does work, it is effective and the side effects are quite minimal. But more and more um, drugs like GLP-1 receptor agonists like liraglutide are also included. And I don't I do give metformin probably the highest of all diabetes drugs, but these GLP-1 receptor agonists, they're pretty good. And so, uh, you know, with fewer side effects. And so I would put them, I'd give it a passing grade, unlike the SGLT inhibitors. I'm not an enthusiastic supporter of those. We got a couple of questions about some specifics here. Let me go and give you a couple of these related to this topic, uh, Ben. And, and by the way, before we do that, uh, just reinforcing, Insulin IQ is not your doctor. Dr. Bickman is not your doctor. <laughs> Always talk to your doctor before making any changes in your own uh, health, the medications, or whatever. So uh, we're just uh, we're just guys on the radio, right? That's all we are. So yeah, yeah. I'm the kind of doctor who can teach your class and not check your rash. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Um, from from a, a, a viewer who joined us from Instagram, can you please address the renal and cardio protection factors of SGL2s, especially Farxiga, F-A-R-X-I-G-A? Um, yeah, I don't know that, that class of drugs. So I'm unaware of any renal protective effect of SGLT2 inhibitors. In fact, I... I, I I don't think there is any. Uh, from my understanding, um, and I'm not a pharmacology professor, so I, I you know, that is a big um, note there. I don't teach, I don't teach um, pharmacology. Um, but people, if someone has kidney damage, that's a contraindication. That's, that means they, they don't use SGLT2 inhibitors because of the potential harm. So if someone has existing kidney damage, and they very well could, diabetes is the leading cause of kidney failure in adults, um, then, then you don't take SGLT2 inhibitors. So to my knowledge, there's no renal protective effect of SGLT2 inhibitors. If anything, there's going to be a risk of renal harm. Um, now, the cardioprotective effect, that's probably real um, uh, for this kind of drug where it's just pushing out the glucose by any way or, or preventing it from coming in because then you have lower glucose and you have lower insulin. That's what's going to be cardioprotective. Nothing about the drug itself. Uh, from Suzanne, what are your thoughts on SEMA or SEMA glutide? 
I, I think that's got to be an uh, GLP-1 receptor agonist, given the, the last uh, the last part of that word. That's not one I've heard of, but it's not surprised. There are so many. So it's not many. surprising. There are so many different versions of these drugs. Um, yeah, I would say my thoughts would be the same as just for the GLP-1 receptor agonists in general. I'm never a very enthusiastic advocate of drugs, um, but this is one that I give a passing grade to. So I have had countless clients who have told me that they're on some of these drugs and they're $400 a month. Um, and these are people who are on, you know, insurance, good insurance. Um, I think it's fascinating. Joel Salatin, one of my favorite farmers, has mentioned before that in the 80s, something like 1980s, we were spending roughly 8% of our income um, on uh, health care and and somewhere around 18% of our income on food, and that today we've just reversed that, that we now spend close to 18% of our income on healthcare and 8% of our income on food. So when you look at the way, you know, we suggest that people eat or you look at, you know, people who are trying to source their meat well or whatever, um, yeah, these can, can, like, gram per gram might be a little bit more of an expensive way to eat, um, but we kind of need to get back to where health-wise where we were in the 80s, right? So let's try and reverse that and spend less on medication and a little more on food. And it's cool to see people do that and not not break, break, break the bank doing it. Yeah. So well said, just a thought. Well said. Yeah. Agree, yeah. agree. Uh, from Colleen, where do glipicides fit in all of this? Um, that's a sulfonylurea. Okay, yeah, I see it here. Um, a sulfonylurea is the class of drug I just mentioned, um, which is an insulin secretagogue. Uh, I am not an advocate of those in general because of the actual documented increased risk of, of mortality. Um, and that's what happens when you're just pushing insulin up even higher. So I'm not a, a, an advocate. I give that a failing grade. But again, if we were talking about Welton's situation, which is an actual truly confirmed um, insufficient insulin, then that kind of drug would be warranted. But I, I think they're, this is the kind of drug that's vastly overprescribed and misused because that it, it plays into the glucocentric paradigm um, that I touched on earlier, which is uh, the glucose is, is high and insulin's actually high, but the person doesn't have any regard for the insulin. They're only looking at the glucose. And they say, well, let's just push the insulin up even higher sulfonylureas like glipizide are going to do that. And then it lowers the glucose and yet they'd actually die more. Mm. Um, but again, if someone has truly, truly deficient glucose uh, insulin, and that's the cause of the glucose, not that they have a lot of insulin that are just too resistant to it, then bumping the insulin up with something like a sulfonylurea, well, then I think that would be justified. Thank you for listening to the Metabolic Classroom. This podcast is brought to you by Insulin IQ. Nutrition and Lifestyle Coaching for Insulin Control and Better Health. Learn more at InsulinIQ.com. And by Health Code, the world's healthiest and most delicious meal replacement shake. Learn more at Get Health, that's G-E-T-H-L-T-H dot com. Find us on Facebook and YouTube at InsulinIQ. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.